Amen. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Track down a Bible, please, and open it with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're doing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and today we come to what's called the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, verses 3 to 12. So I'm going to read those verses, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, he said, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Lord, as we open your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, you would speak to us through this word, that you would help each and every one of us to consider this blessed way of life. And then, Lord, would you help each and every one of us live this life out for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, this is an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is a uh, kind of a summary of the kind of people who are members of the kingdom of heaven. And it helps us to think about this as kind of the chronology of the gospel dynamic. Over and over in the Bible, what it tends to do is it says what God has done, and then it tells us what we ought to do in response to that. Now, that's an important order, because if you flip it around, you get yourself in trouble. If you try to say, here's what we need to do to try to get God on our side, that's, that's not the gospel. That's the opposite. That's trying to earn our way into heaven. But over and over throughout the scriptures, God will say, here's what I have done, and in light of that, live that out. Let me give you one example, the uh, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have uh, an introduction section where it says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, and then he describes what we ought to do in light of that. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, do not on and on and on. That's the gospel dynamic. This is another example where Jesus is saying, here's, what, here's who you are, here's who you are in light of what God has done, and then what he'll do later on in the sermon is he'll show us what that looks like. So this is an introductory section. It's describing kingdom citizens, and it's describing who they are, what they are like, and why they are blessed. And that's a key word there that you see in, in every beatitude. It's the word blessing. It's the word blessed that means happy. And so this really is describing the way to a happy life. And in fact, that's what we most need right now, is it not? We want to know how can we be happy. That's a feature that God has built into us. All of us are really wondering, what would make me happy right now? And there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's a lot of looking at the world going, oh, I'm I'm not really satisfied right now. I'm not really happy right now. I want to figure out what I could do to make myself happy. In fact, people who do uh, placement in vocations are noticing that this is a year where people are just fed up with everything, and so they're not willing to do a job 
where they're not happy. There's a lot of shifting and moving around. People have come to the conclusion, I'm not going to do a job that doesn't give me satisfaction. And I think that that vibe is true in almost every industry. People are at a place now where they're saying, what would make me happy? Now, the Sermon on the Mount gives us an idea here. It tells us that there is a way to live this blessed life, this happy way of life, and it is not circumstantial. In fact, it will fly in the face of awful circumstances. There is a way to live in harmony with God no matter what is going on in the world around us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. The Sermon on the Mount says that if you really want to be happy, here is the way. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly happy, who is really blessed. And so that's what we're looking at today. How can we be those sorts of people who are blessed and therefore are happy? Well, as we look at the flow of the Beatitudes, it has kind of three different sections. The first section deals with the kingdom citizens' relationship to God and how they view themselves in relationship to God. And so that's the first section. And then it turns our attention to the believer's relationship to the world. How do we, how do we interact with people around us? How do we think about or, or even feel about the world around us? And how do we deal with other people? and those sorts of things. And then at the end, it flips it around and it says, what does the world do in turn? How does the world relate to kingdom citizens? And so those are the three big sections. But let's go ahead and walk through the Beatitudes one at a time and take note of what God is saying there. First, we find this idea of poverty of spirit. Look at verse three. Verse three reads like this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It tells us that being blessed involves having poverty. Now, that sounds confusing because we often think, why would you want poverty? Like, we think that being happy involves having a lot, but the Bible tells us that those who are blessed have this poverty of spirit. They are poor in spirit. It's this, it's this posture of humility. It's recognizing need. It's saying, God, I don't have what I need, but you might, and I'm looking to you for it. That's what's going on here. It's inviting us to consider this posture of humility in relationship to God, that we need to be people who come before him and say, Lord, I need you. I can look at my own heart, I can look at my own life, and I can recognize my own deficiencies, and I'm coming to you pleading for your grace and your mercy. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Isaiah, um, in fact, Jesus, I don't, I don't think he just pulled all of these out of, out of thin air. I think he was looking at some of the promises that have been made a long, long time ago, and he was taking them and saying, these things are coming true. What we've been hoping for, what, what God has been promising all along, they're coming true right now. And so actually, Isaiah uh, shows up an awful lot in the Beatitudes. Some of the promises that he made in his letter that God spoke through him, Jesus is now taking and saying, these things are true and they're happening. So I'm going to point to these along the way, but Isaiah 57 reveals that first Beatitude. It reads like this, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. So Isaiah's preaching, says this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, God, God now speaking, 
I live in a high and holy place. Roger, 10-4, we check that one off. We go, well, that's, that's not surprising at all. Like, we're talking about God, so that he would live in this high and lofty place, that's no surprise at all. He's, he's the holy one. He's the exalted one. He's the one who, who lives forever, whose name is holy. So, yeah, I expect him to live in this kind of otherworldly dimension. He's God. But here's the surprising feature. He goes on to say, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Saying God lives way up high and way down low. God lives in this high and holy place, but he also dwells with those who are lowly in spirit. He also lives down low with the contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So it's telling us something about God, where he is and how to access him. He is otherworldly, he is holy, he is different, but he is also near to those who are poor in spirit. So God is telling us something about himself. Well, the principle then, I think, is one that shows up over and over again throughout the entire Bible. It's this idea here. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The reason why those who are poor in spirit are blessed is because they have that humility about them. In contrast to those who are proud, who would say to God, I don't really need you. I don't need your help. I'm, I'm good. I'll figure this out on my own. I'll use my own strength and resources to try to solve these problems. But God opposes the proud, but instead he gives grace to the humble. And that's why those who are poor in spirit, I believe, are incredibly blessed of God. Now, this was the same idea that Mary came up with when, when uh, the Virgin Mary was told, you're going to have a child and he's going to be the son of the Most High God. He's Emmanuel. He's Messiah. He's Savior. And she says, who am I? that you would have favor on me. Are you sure you got the right address? Are you sure you're dealing with the right person? And sure enough, God knew exactly what he was doing, and he targeted her with his favor, and she was able to experience that incredible reality of, of having the Son of God. But she wrote a song then, and the lyrics of the song are very significant. She writes a song, and it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, and she, she sings like this, My soul rejoices in God my Savior. And here's why. Because he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. He saw me and he looked on me with favor. He was mindful of the humble estate of his servant. But then she goes on to say, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted the humble. That's that idea there that God blesses those who are poor in spirit, those who are humble enough to acknowledge their need for God. And that's why those people are blessed. They are blessed because they recognize their, their dependence upon God. Now, one, one more quick illustration before we move on. I'm spending extra time on this first one because I do think it's kind of primary. I think it's very important that we would understand this, this concept. Jesus told a parable, which is a story with a meaning. And he told a parable about two different people who went up to the temple to pray. This is Luke chapter 18. And he says, these two people go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. And right away, that would, for the listener, that would indicate this is a religious individual. They would dress in a certain way. 
where if you saw them, you would know this is a religious individual. Remember um, when I had the privilege of going to Israel and I sat next to somebody and they were wearing a religious outfit and they opened up the Torah and they're reading the Torah and they're rocking back and forth. So you you see a person, a Pharisee, and you go, that person is a religious individual. Everything about them, their aura, their dress, the things that they do, they are religious. So that person goes up to the temple to pray, but also another person goes up at the same time, a tax collector. Straight away, that would indicate this person is a sinner. They have vocationally chosen to take on an occupation whereby they have compromised their faith. They are, they are working now with the enemy against their kinsmen. They, they are compromised. A tax collector is a known sinner. And so these two people go up to the temple to pray, and Jesus tells the story, and he says, the Pharisee prayed like this. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that awful tax collector. But instead, he goes on to list off all of these things about himself that are so great. Thank you, God, that I do these things, that I'm a religious individual, that I, that I pray in a certain way, that I, that I give a certain amount of money, and on and on and on. The tax collector, Jesus says, prays like this. He's off in the distance, his eyes are downcast, and he's praying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, only one of them goes home that day right with God. The tax collector. The tax collector had what I would say is Poverty of spirit, a poorness of spirit that says, God, I don't deserve your kindness. I need you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your love. But I know who I really am. The Pharisee is full of pride. The late uh, Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said, God sends no one away except for those who are full of themselves. What we need is poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the, the, first, the very first beatitude helps us to understand maybe even how to get into the kingdom. It's to acknowledge our need. It's to receive from God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, what God alone can give us. It's the good news of the gospel. But secondly, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I, I, I don't think this is just talking about ordinary loss. I, I think that's a part of it, but that's not the entirety of what this beatitude is getting at. I think this is talking about blessed are those who mourn over what they find in the world, the brokenness that they find in the world, the loss, the, the, the fact that the world is not as it should be. It's brokenness over sin. It's sorrow over sin. Do you remember what Jesus did when he looked at Jerusalem right at the end of his life and ministry on earth? He looked at Jerusalem and and the Bible tells us he was moved with compassion and he wept. And he basically said, Jerusalem, if, if you only knew the good things I would do for you, I long to gather you up like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would have none of it. He's moved with compassion, and he's mourning over the city itself. I remember leading a a Bible study years ago with students from youth group, and we would get together in the morning, and we would pick a book of the Bible, and we'd go through it together, and uh, we were studying Deuteronomy, and, you know, the kids would all show up. We'd open up the Bibles. We'd start walking through it, 
And, and one, of the, one of the girls um, would just cry through the whole Bible study. And I'm a dope, you know, like a young man who just is clueless. I'm like, are you okay? Like, what's, what's going on here? I don't know how to handle this. Like, we've got a bunch of students here, and, and you're just quietly, like, sniffling, and tears are streaming down your face, and, and I'm just kind of like, okay, this is just a Bible study. Like, I don't know what's going on here. But what she was doing was she was connecting the dots between what she was studying in the Bible and the fact that she knows and loves people who do not know God. And she would just cry. And that was deeply moving to me, and I began to realize, wow, whatever she is feeling, that's what I want to feel. Like, that is right. To be able to look at the world and just be emotionally moved by it and to say, look, if there are people that I know, that I love, that I care for deeply, that don't know God, my heart is moved, and I want to mourn over that. I want to, I want to weep over that. That's what Jesus did. But not only should we look at the world and be broken over the condition of the world, we have even more material to mourn over. Because here's what we also find, that whatever's broken in the world as we observe it, we find that in ourselves. We have our own sin to mourn over. I remember telling you guys the uh, legendary story of um, G.K. Chesterton when the, the London Times wrote an editorial that was titled, What's Wrong with the World? And he wrote back in response, Dear sirs, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. See, we look at the world and we mourn over its brokenness. We weep over sin. We weep over societal structures that are unfair and unjust. We, we look at the world and the people that we love who don't know God yet, and we weep over that. But we also look at our own hearts and we go, yeah, everything I find wrong out there, I also find in here. And that's deeply troubling. And that moves us then to this idea of repentance. So Isaiah 61 puts it like this. The Lord will come to those, it says, the Lord will come to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God has been promising this for ages, and here Jesus is reiterating it and saying, look, when you mourn over sin, take comfort in this. God will draw near to you. He'll give you a crown of beauty. He'll give you the oil of joy. He'll give you garments of praise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Third, we find this concept of being meek. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, this progression makes sense to me. If you're humble enough to have poverty of spirit, and you're mourning over sin in the world and in your own heart, your disposition will be one of meekness. Not pride, not arrogance, not self-confidence, but one of meekness and humility. Now, it's a funny word that we don't even really use that often anymore, but it's one that talks about being quiet and gentle. One of the dictionary definitions says it's the ability to endure injury with patience and without, in, without resentment. So having this meekness is what Jesus is saying is actually a blessed disposition. They will inherit the earth. The meek people are those who are humble and lowly and gentle and patient in contrast to those who are self-righteous, 
proud, assertive, confident in their own abilities. They're going to push back the darkness of the world with their own might and strength. But the meek are those who are waiting patiently on God. Let me show it to you from Psalm 37. It says, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. It's talking about the the importance of waiting on the Lord. It goes on to say, for those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. That's that promise that Jesus now updates for us. He's telling us, blessed are the meek. When we look at the world, I'm not saying that we should be inactive, but even the way that we engage in the world ought to be from a posture of humility and patience because God gives us this incredible promise, the meek will inherit the earth. So whatever is going on in the world around us, we're not going to fret, we're not going to resort to evil behavior to try to resist that evil ourselves, but we are going to wait patiently on the Lord with this meekness, with this humility, and we are confident that we will inherit the earth. Fourth, look at verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is telling us that members of the kingdom of heaven are desiring of doing what is right before God. That's what that word righteousness means. It's being right. It's being in that state of rightness with God. And so those who are members of the kingdom are craving rightness in the world. They desire, they hunger and thirst for doing what is right. Jesus tells us that our righteousness, if you're going to be a member of the kingdom, your righteousness actually needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which when you hear that, you should say, wait a minute, how on earth could I do that? Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were professionals at that. That's all they did. They would read their Bibles, they would study their Bibles, and they would try to figure out how they could live this thing out. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness is better than that, you won't even enter the kingdom. Okay, well, how on earth can any of us have that sort of righteousness? Well, it's a righteousness by faith. That's what Jesus teaches throughout this sermon, that he wants us to have not an outward expression of righteousness. Not this kind of, you look at somebody and you go, oh, they're a spiritual person. Look at all the cool stuff they do. They go to church, they serve, they read their Bibles, like all of that outward stuff. Like That's not all that Jesus is after. He wants an inward righteousness. He actually says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in other places, they're like whitewashed tombs. They look really pretty on the outside. You painted it up, it looks great. But what's inside of it? Death. Dead bones. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who long for, who crave a righteousness that is by faith. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 9. He says, the the, the, um, Israelites pursued the law as a way of righteousness, but they've not attained it. They've not gotten their goal. And he says, why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They tried to attain a righteousness on their own, a a self-created righteousness of their own obedience. Jesus is not interested in that. He wants us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that he is willing to give us, his own righteousness. Now, us having a personal rightness with God is a part of this, but also members of the kingdom of heaven should desire not just an individual rightness, 
We should actually crave a society of righteousness. God is coming to make a world that is right. We should care deeply about structures in society being equitable and fair. We should care that that the world would actually begin to embody what Jesus is ultimately coming to do. In fact, Isaiah, as I've mentioned, he shows up in the background of many of these different Beatitudes, but that section that Jesus keeps drawing from in Isaiah chapters 50 and up through 60, um, he just keeps pulling out these ideas. But right there in Isaiah 58, God says some very troubling stuff to religious people. He says, look, I know, and I'm paraphrasing big time, but God is saying, you're doing all this cool like worship services and prayer meetings and fasting. You're doing all this different stuff and it looks, looks great, but I'm not interested in it. He actually says, if your spirituality doesn't result in benefiting the world, it's worthless. He says, the kind of fast that I want the kind, of, the kind of religious thing that I'm interested in is a blessing to the world. It's, it's dealing with systems that are oppressive and releasing those from captivity and bondage and oppression. John Stott puts it like this. We'll put it up on the screen. Social righteousness is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression together with the promotion of civil rights, justice from the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to God. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for a world that reflects being right with God. That's the kind of Christianity that I'm interested in. Here's the promise. They will be satisfied. Jesus one day will come And make that desire come true. But in the meantime, that should be our great concern. That we are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. Next we find verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is dealing with how we treat other people. How are kingdom citizens supposed to interact with the world? How do we deal with other people? Well, we should be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's a correlation between us receiving God's mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, his kindness, and us extending that to other people. And that ought to come very naturally. In fact, it should be the MO of what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen, that you are a merciful individual, that people just gravitate toward you because you've experienced the kindness of God, and therefore you're reflecting the character of God and how you deal with other people. Forgiven people forgive people. But here's what's really troubling. Here in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places in the New Testament, it gets flipped around exactly. And it, it, and it says, look, if you're not doing this, then don't expect it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching on prayer, he says, if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive you. James, another disciple, he makes the same point in his letter in James 2.13. He says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. So it's saying, like, don't even expect mercy from God if you're not willing to extend it to other people. We're, We're dealing with a broken world right now. We need to be known as those who are kind and merciful to others. 
And our ability to extend that mercy proves our awareness of what God has done for us. Or maybe we don't really understand what God has done. Maybe we've not even received what God has done for us. But kingdom citizens are those who extend mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is getting at the question of who has access to God. What kind of person could come in contact with a holy and awesome God? Psalm 23 is another place where that question is addressed, and it says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Answer, verse 4, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. The kind of people that see God, that have access to God, are those who have a pure heart. And you might think then, well, that must be dealing with somebody who's a really good person, a really good individual. But the idea of a pure heart really is this idea of a sincere reality of a heart that is committed to the things of God. It's this genuine commitment to God. That's what creates a pure heart. And what's surprising then is what happens in the life and ministry of Jesus. The people who have access to God, it's not the religious people. They turn away. They resist. They, they go in a different direction. The people who keep getting into the kingdom are not religious leaders, but they're tax collectors. They're prostitutes. They're people who are formerly demon-possessed. They're people who are known to be sinners. And, and so what we find then is this purity of heart It's an interior reality. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Goes on to say, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who who make it their business to make peace in the world. Reconciliation is, is a work of God. He is reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, according to the book of Colossians. He is breaking down the walls of hostility between people in Christ. He has a ministry of reconciliation. He is taking people who are opposed to one another, and he's drawing them together. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us he invites us into that work. This is his business. What does he do? He loves his enemies. He serves his enemies. He blesses his enemies until they become his friends, and he loves them to the point of them becoming family. Reconciliation is the work of God, and it is something we are invited into. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because when we are engaged in making peace, we are reflecting our Heavenly Father. He wants us to be known as peacemakers. Members of the kingdom should be known, seen, and experienced as those who are making peace. So when you show up at work, when, when, when you're dealing with um, other people, when you're posting online, are, do people expect, oh good, this person is here, there's a chance at peace. We, we could get to some level of agreement, some level of peace because they are here, they're a kingdom citizen. Or do they see us as troublemakers, agitators, people who are creating division and hostility? You see, members of the kingdom are concerned with peace. Verse 10 goes on to say, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've looked now at how kingdom 
citizens deal with the world and think about the world and feel about the world, but now it flips it around and says, well, how does the world treat us? And you would think, man, if we're concerned with peace and we're extending mercy and you know, our hearts are broken for those who don't know God, you would think the world would be like, hey, we like you. You're great. But here's what we find. We will experience persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what this is telling us is, in ordinary Christianity, persecution is normal. I remember at youth group, we were doing a series and we were talking about persecution. We had some of our leaders get together. We were talking through uh, some of the services and the content of the messages. And this one leader was literally scratching his head. We're talking about persecution and he's like, I don't get it. Like, this is so foreign to me. Like, the idea of being a Christian and experiencing persecution just sounds odd. It sounds fictitious. It doesn't even sound real. We don't do that. Christians in America, we just don't experience that at all. And so this is kind of an odd concept for us because from about the 90s on, what have we been trying to do? We've been trying to prove how relevant and cool and authentic Christianity is. We're trying to prove to the rest of the world how great Christianity is. But the true article of Christianity, the reality is persecution is normal. It's not just something that everyone's going to look at you and go, wow, you're pretty great. Instead, we find that when you are truly and sincerely living out the Christian faith, it results in hostility because you're different. You have such a different worldview that, that the world doesn't know what to do with you, but it hates you for it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself said, look, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If we're following him, we shouldn't expect any better treatment than what he got. He was, he was persecuted to the point of his life being taken. So Christians get ready for this. Peter, one of the disciples present at the sermon, I think he got this really, really well. So he, he wrote about it in his letter. I want to show it to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's talking to Christians and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as strangers, as pilgrims, I, I, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, first off, the people who were reading this letter were probably like, why are you calling me a foreigner? Like, I grew up here. Like, I live in my hometown where I grew up. I, I know everybody here. Why are you calling me a foreigner? And the reason why is very significant. He's saying, you are no longer primarily a citizen of your geography. You've transferred that allegiance. You are now in exile. You, you are a citizen of heaven. So I'm urging you, given your new status, to live in light of that. I'm urging you to live in a certain way where you would live beautifully. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live beautifully as a member of the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in his letter in chapter 4. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised. Like, like don't, don't be surprised when you experience suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Persecution is not weird. Don't be surprised at it. 
Don't be surprised when people speak ill of you because of your faith in Christ. Recognize that this is part of the gig. The world is going to treat you with hostility because you are different. Verse 11 goes on to say, Blessed are you, this is back in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you experience hostility, resentment, persecution, you should rejoice. So what the disciples did, they were flogged and they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. We want to be those kinds of kingdom citizens, ready for persecution. So let's wrap this up as we've made our way through all the Beatitudes now. As we think about this, we want to be humble people. As we think about ourselves and our relationship to God, let us be poor in spirit. Let us be meek. Let us mourn over our sinfulness. When we think about the world, we should be able to look at it with compassion and desire for God's goodness and his righteousness to prevail. We should be merciful with other people. We should be known to be peacemakers who are, tra- who are practicing a true religion that comes from a heart that is sincerely in love with God and desiring to benefit the world. When we think about what the world is going to do for us, we should be ready. It's going to treat us with persecution. It's going, to, it's going to have hostility toward us. And that will not surprise us at all because we are following our Savior who died for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to be kingdom citizens. I pray, Lord, that you would so radically change us that it would be obvious that we are members of your heavenly society. Lord, let us reflect you well as we live faithfully here. Help us to, to, to long for the day when you return and you make all things right. But in the meantime, Lord, we're asking that we could be your kingdom citizens, living faithfully in this broken world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.